Blog well, Radio. It's election day here in the United States. Actually, Virginia and New Jersey are the ones getting focused. And joining us, special guest, chairman of, former chairman of the Republican National Committee, he is the Honorable Frank Ferenkopf, to give us election day coverage, our thoughts, and hopefully prayers for 2014-2016. Oh, and by the way, hey, Canada, our mayors don't smoke crack. Oh, wait a minute. We had Marion Barry. This is backroom politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Hey, good afternoon, everyone out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday and to his left, ironically, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He's the former vice president of the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Hi, Justin. Glad to be here. You're going to have to speak up today because right now we're going for the phone while Walk Talk Radio fixes this little technical glitch that we're going to deal with them on in a second. And to my 1 o'clock, she is the former Obama appointee and general counsel for the Maritime Administration former House Counsel for Homeland Security Committee in the House of Representatives. You see Honorable Denise Kraft. Hello, Denise. Hi, Justin. And to her left is the former chairman of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland. He's one-time insider, Carl Dubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. And to my right, which he often is, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count under four presidents. He's a long-time Senate Stafford, one-time Washington insider, and a distinguished fellow at Stimson Center, he is Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Justin, how are you doing? Oh, it's great. Good, bad, all over the place. Joining us today, special guest. He is the former chairman of the Republican National Committee. He is longtime Politico, longtime Washington Insider. He is the Honorable Frank Ferenkopf. Mr. Chairman, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure being with this you. This is fantastic. Uh, first of all, I want to tell everybody, uh, folks, this is today, and thus the technical problems, this is our 150th show. We've been on the air for three years. Today marks our 150th episode uh, here at Shelley's Backroom for Blog Talk Radio. Uh, but there's more and more to get to. We'll talk about that later on the show. Real, quick, real quickly, we're going to talk about the latest analysis coming out of the, uh, the election cycles in, uh, in New Jersey, Virginia, and nationwide. But let's start first with New Jersey. That's going to be very simple. Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, tell me a little bit. New Jersey right now is uh, re-electing Chris Christie, short of them having pictures of him with farm animals. 
he's going to get reelected. Am I am I correct on that? Big time. Uh, and the real story is, you know, New Jersey is about a bluest state that you can have in the United States. And this man, without a big, long political career, having come out of uh, the Attorney General's office, U.S. Attorney's office background, and he has a way about him that uh, reminds me in many ways of uh, the man I served, Ronald Reagan, who could identify with people in the middle, conservative Democrats, and uh, I think he's going to win big, and I think uh, tomorrow will be the start of uh, the 2016 month. Chris Christie is an anomaly almost right now in the Republican Party. He's somebody that's got a lot of traction in a blue state. He's getting a lot of attention uh, from both Dems and Republicans. He's obviously somebody that's embraced the political process in a largely blue state as a Republican. Why is he such an anomaly right now, Mr. Chairman? I, because I don't think you know, there's any game playing with him. Uh, he, he doesn't do things with a gentle touch. He's very frank. Uh, he's very candid. You know where he stands. Uh, he doesn't pull any punches. Uh, and uh, I think people respect that. They, they just... If they want to hear the plain facts, good, bad, or indifferent. Is, is what Christie doing almost a blueprint for what other candidates in the Republican Party should be looking at, or is that something that's just specific to New Jersey and the Northeast? Well, I think it probably is at this point in time. We don't know, but, uh, you know, I've been in this game a long time, and, and you run a different race if you're running in Alabama than if you run in my home state of Nevada or you run in Montana. So there are differences around the country, but clearly what he is doing at this point in time, he's the only Republican that's really attracting not only uh, Democrat voters, but also uh, a large percentage of independent voters. Uh, Bob Hines, when you, when you look at New Jersey, um, when, when we think of New Jersey, we obviously think heavy Democrat. Uh, but the Democrat there is getting zero play. They're talking about a possible double digit even into the 20s uh, as far as the win that uh, Governor Christie's going to get. But Bono really never had any stake going into this. She never got the support of the White House. Uh, she really didn't get a lot of support from uh, the DNC. Was this just a write-off for them? It seems like it, doesn't it? Because you expect in New Jersey for a large turnout, a strong, a strong campaign on the Democratic side. And I don't think I heard or saw anything at all about her or her campaign in the last uh, last two months. She was just a non-entity almost. But, Carl Tubman, you were former chairman of the Democratic Party in the great state of Maryland. Uh, how do you tell a candidate like a bone that, hey, you're pretty much out there on your own. We'll do what we can, but this is a lost cause. Or do you tell her that? I think I think she might have been told by the actions of people who, who didn't do anything for her. She did have a picture taken with the president, uh, and that was about all. And I'm not sure how much good that would do her. Well, Kate Carney said in the press in the uh, press briefing yesterday, he was asked point blank, "Does the president support Mary Bono?" Or Mary Bono, good lord, uh, <laughs> Senator Bono? Does he support Senator Bono? Jake Harney kind of tapped the around it and when pressed with questions said, yeah, he supports her. But he didn't real feel warm and fuzzy on that one, Carl. Uh, is there a reason? Does the president have some sort of uh, payback to Christie for Sandy? I don't, think, I don't think that's the case. I think it's the case of 
you know, where are you going to put your money? You're going to put in New Jersey, where Christie is very, very popular, and and this woman had very little chance. Or you're going to put it in Virginia, and 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 push uh, McCollum. And I think that might have been the actually the, 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 the Democratic Governors uh, Association. Uh, and a whole bunch of Democrats poured a lot of money in there the last two weeks to try to keep down the margin of the victory. They right. didn't want to see uh, a Christie 30-point win, which would really sort of catapult him to the front for 2016. Yeah. So they poured a lot of money in, but I don't think it was to help no. her win. It was to keep <clears throat> his margin of victory down. And well, also, also it was to help the, uh, the uh, legislature, people. But uh, Denise Proud. Uh, from a Democratic standpoint, what is the attraction to all these Democrats in a truly blue blood state like New Jersey? What's what's getting the support for a Republican? If you take a look at them, I, I mean, when you well, first of all, you've got two folks from New Jersey. You have Christie, and you have uh, the new senator that just came in. So you Cory Booker. Cory Booker. You have two very strong personalities. And when you're looking at the governor that you have right now and you don't have a strong personality to go against it because that strong personality just got elected to the Senate, then what do you do? You make the decision that you put up the money that you need to make sure it's not a complete slaughter, and you dump the rest of the money in Virginia to make sure that the Democrats take the state. Well, Mr. Chairman, I want to bring up the relationship between uh, Chris Christie and Cory Booker. Very tight relationship. Newark being uh, New Jersey's largest city. Uh, was a very popular mayor there, but there seemed to be a very close kindred spirit between the governor and the mayor. Uh, it almost seems like Christie Mayer wanted Cory Booker to get that Senate seat in some aspects. Does that make the party as a whole nervous, or does that seem like a way at the end of the tunnel for bipartisanship? No, I think what happened is you've got to understand the approach that I think that uh, the governor takes to politics, which when you ask whether other Republicans should look around the country and do the same thing, what he did from day one is he went in to the black areas of the state of New Jersey, and he made sure he had a good relationship with the mayors, not only Corey and in, in Newark, but in other parts of the state. Trenton, he went, oranges, he went into the Hispanic community. He went into the Asian community. I mean, he really reached out. Uh, one of the things that we, that we should have learned as Republicans uh, after the last election, the president, uh, you know, Mitt Romney won most of the constituencies that historically, prior to 2012, would have elected you president of the United States. What he didn't count on was the changing demographics and the tremendous job the, the president's team did, particularly with social media, going after blacks, Asians, Hispanics, getting them enrolled and getting them to vote. Well, I think that what the governor has done in New Jersey is he did that his own way early on. And so he did have a good relationship with, uh, with Booker. Now, whether Booker, what Booker would have done if Lautenberg had not died, we don't know whether he would have gotten in that race. I, I doubt that he would have. But uh, uh, I think that's what the governor has done in the state. He's gone out early, and I think where you have a changing demographic, uh, and, you know, one of the amazing things that you probably haven't, don't know this, but in 2012, for the first time in history, more whites died in the United States than were born in the United States. I'll say that again. More whites died in the United States 
that were born in the United States. The first time in history we've reached it. The demographics of this nation have changed, and if you're going to be in national politics, you better be damn well aware of where the democratics are, or excuse me, the demographics are, and develop your messages accordingly. Alan Moore here. Alan Moore, you know, uh, New Jersey is going, we can't really say that New Jersey is the rest of America. It's very Northeast, it's very lunch-pale Republican, you know, conservative blue state in some aspects. But does the rest of the country look at New Jersey as maybe being this, maybe the way forward in a 2014 or a 2016? I don't know that the rest of the country is paying a lot of attention to New Jersey. Politicians are paying attention to New Jersey, um, and they're drawing different uh, conclusions depending upon where they're from. As Frank said earlier, how you run in New Jersey I don't care who you are, it's very different than how you run in Alabama or Montana or, or California. There, there is a confluence of factors that, that came together here, um, and it turns out that people like Chris Christie. First of all, he's a great big guy, and, and so he's not one of these perfect, right-out-of-television candidates. He has a bit of an everyman look and an everyman quality. Uh, as Frank said, he was out all over the state, reaching out across um, uh, all of the, uh, the ethnic boundaries that are important in a northeastern state. He worked with a Democratic legislature to get some stuff done. Um, and uh, he calls it as he sees them. People tend to like that. So, uh, it, it's, it, it, But it's hard to create copies of a, of a Chris Christie, even if you wanted to in those places where that might work. Having said that, it, there, there are, there are uh, important lessons there about uh, not getting overly rigid ideologically and, uh, and being able to communicate face-to-face. Congressman Allen. Picking up on what Alan just said, <clears throat> the idea that you're going to go out and find another Chris Christie is about as good as the idea you're going to find another Ronald Reagan or yeah. the Democrats are going to go out and find another Bill Clinton. These were people with very particular skills and instincts that are virtually unduplicatable. Uh, he, he's a very intelligent and also a very smart man. Uh, I think the fact that he was uh, gracious to President Obama when he came up after the hurricane it may have teed off some Rockford Republicans, but I think the average guy saw that as a very decent thing to do, as, a, as the proper thing to do. And he seems to know when, you, yeah, you've got to play to your face, but sometimes your face just heads their head up their ass. Well, you know, I, I, I want to disagree with you on one thing. I, I, I said it at the time. I have no problem with uh, the governor kissing the president after the president came into New Jersey. My point is that he didn't have to French kiss him. I thought he went a little far. With Keep your tongue in your mouth. That's the word of the day. Mr. Chairman, I want to ask this question. I want to go over that because, you know, Chris Christie took a lot of heat after that walk around in Asbury Park with the president. And he took heat after the post-Sandy recovery was done walk around throwing baseballs on the boardwalk at Asbury Park. 
Was that fair to Chris Christie? I mean, did Chris Christie really cause Mitt Romney to lose the... I mean, a lot of Republicans are saying, well, that was the... You know, problem. when you lose, there's a lot of people who come up with ideas about how you lost. Now, there's no question, because I'm one of these things closely, that the hurricane really stopped momentum. There was a lot of momentum going towards Governor Romney, and the hurricane just took presidential politics off the front pages and off the television screens for days and days. Uh, and those people who were looking for another excuse, I, I think, uh, you know, blamed the, the governor for doing it. But I, I don't think that that was. I think it was unfair. I think, look, and we also got to remember, he knew he was up for re-election. <laughs> he was a politician. He was out there doing what he had to do for his people. But, 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 that was Congress now. Just report one thing that Frank said about the French kiss. Uh, I think a lot of Republicans saw it as a French kiss. I don't think the average Joe Blow saw it as a French kiss at all. And I think the the, the average run-of-the-mill Democrat, independent, and, and, and non-partisan Republicans uh, saw that as a, a very gracious thing that a good governor would do. I think he'd make points with it. Well, and from the novelist's standpoint, it was a hallelujah that they were able to respond in the way they were supposed to after Hurricane Sandy. I mean, I, I lived through, within the administration, Hurricane Katrina. And that was god-awful. And, and that exposed a lot of weaknesses that occurred down in New Orleans, like what happened in New Jersey and the preparation. And you had a governor that literally said, if you don't get your bugs out there, I'm not saving them. And so people respect that. And I think that helped him. Carl Tubin. I think, I think the, the, uh, the Sandy incident, the president coming and, and they doing what they did uh, together, I think it strengthened him. And, it, and, and then you... you put that with a weak candidate for, uh, for uh, governor on the Democratic side. I think a lot of Democrats in New Jersey probably <clears throat> looked at the fact that uh, Obama came so quickly. They, they worked well together. And a lot of Democrats probably thought, well, you know, it's okay to vote for Republican, and this is not a bad guy. Alan Moore. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, I, I'm not ready to let this kissing thing go quite yet. Um, <laughs> It, it's. Uh, I think that. I think that. Uh, that French kissing is in the eye of the beholder, because there are plenty of Democrats and Independents who thought, "Oh, good, they're talking." I know. And I the French kissing in my eye. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that uh, a lot of the media jumped on and said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah," and that I think helped him give give. Uh, Give Christie some additional encouragement um, to uh, to embrace and maybe open that mouth just a bit. Um, but I think that that re- what Republicans were seeing was quite different because we were in the middle of this campaign. There was still some hope that that uh, that Romney might be able to pull this out, and and uh, and as, as Frank said, it stopped all the momentum, but it stopped it in a way that also called attention to the connection between these two people. Now, the fact that, the fact is that did help Christie, if you will, with Democrats and independents, and also helped the president in that regard. There was. Nothing in that, however, for Republicans in the Northeast, in the South, in the Midwest, in the West. And I think that's where uh, uh, 
the embrace and sort of the extended embrace, with or without the mouth open, is, is where, where Republicans were getting squeamish, concerned, uh, and it sort of had the enough already uh, mindset. Denise Crown. You guys may have been upset over the French kids in 2012, but I can guarantee you in 2016 you're going to be thrilled by it. I mean, what, what you've got right now is a Republican governor who has shown that he can lead and he knows how to manage. And I understand my own weaknesses from my own party, and I know what's about to be portrayed. And I think, unfortunately for the Democrats, you have a very strong candidate. Whether or not you want to kiss him, I don't know. But I think you'll be happy he did so. Oh, well, Mr. Chairman, you know, well, Congressman Al first, and go ahead. Is this now open to uh, textual an analogies that we can? <laughs> no, it's it's not, Congressman. No, it's not. It's a family show. Al, tell us, and then we'll decide. Chairman Krakow said they're coming back, dude. You're killing me. But, Mr. Chairman, I don't even know where to go from this. Mr. Chairman, one of the stories that broke overnight uh, regarding this was the release of the betting files from the, uh, tw- the uh, 2012 election cycle where then-Governor Romney, presidential candidate, was looking at Christie's possible VP. Uh, the whole pufferfish, Operation Goldfish, two questions on that. One, it obviously hasn't really hurt uh, Governor Christie in New Jersey. Is that something you think might hurt him in 2016? Well, I don't think so. I, in fact, uh, I think just yesterday, uh, Governor Romney almost came out as close as you can to endorsing Christie uh, for 2016, and you can come without actually doing it. Uh, so, you know, and I, I think fundamentally anything that was there was old news. Uh, you know what happens is losing staffers in presidential elections. Uh, are always looking for ways to get back at people who they think uh, hurt their man one way or the other. And I think that's what happened. It's obvious some staffer released stuff, but it was, you know, there was, uh, if it was anything there, it would have been front page New York Times. But does, does it shock you? I mean, because usually in other presidential elections that I've been involved with, those vetting files get locked up somewhere in a safety deposit box in the losing, in the losing candidate's hometown. We never see these documents. Was there something strategic about releasing these? Is I, I think, again, I think it was a frustrated aide of, of the governor who felt in some ways that uh, he wanted to take a shot back, but it didn't go anywhere. And I thought the fact that the governor, uh, governor Romney stepped up immediately and said what he said yesterday uh, was a, you know, an indication. I don't think it means anything. Alan Moore, this kind of a release, though, is very embarrassing to Romney himself personally because there is a, a very tight wall around this kind of information that is done by the, the people charged with vetting. And it's always a sort of a separate, closely contained operation, in part so that you can get personal information, you can get financial candor, information, candor, yep. and you need full and complete candor and you and, and you need to be able to hold that stuff basically forever. Somebody leaked it, and that has probably got the the Romney uh, hierarchy uh, now dispersed, trying to figure out who did that and how do we extract a pound of flesh of penalty for that? Because that really is a, a big sin. You cannot have uh, potential vice presidential candidates down the road 
being asked for an enormous amount of private information and have them wonder, is this going to show up in a book in a couple of years? Um, it, 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 as far as Christie is concerned, I completely agree that, that <laughs> the New York Times would have been all over this. Although maybe they found something that they're going to sit on and wait. Who knows? It's not, uh, it, some of that stuff was news to some of us. But, but I think there is this other, this other concern, the people who, who are involved in this, in this whole enterprise of, uh, of Washington and elections uh, find very concerning that, that highly confidential information promised to, be, to remain confidential is somehow out there now and turned over to some guys writing a book. I mean, Mr. Chairman, is this, is this the result of just the 24-hour news cycle? Is this a result? Are we going to see leaks like this happen again? Or on both sides of the aisles, there's going to be a press to say, hey, look, that's inside baseball, insider information. We don't need the media doing that. That's for You're going to have both. You're going to have both. You're going to have some people that are going to leak it. Uh, I mean, she used to be the only person who got this sort of thing was Bob Wooden. <laughs> <laughs> he was the only one who got this, but Howman and what's his name, who write the Alpern, Alpern. And, and Alpern, I mean, they're, they're both smart guys and have good connections, and uh, they have a way of getting it. But, uh, but I think you'll, you'll have campaigns that will do their best to make sure this doesn't happen again, but it'll happen. Adam, more last thought before we go to Yeah, there's, you know, there's we focused on this confidential information uh, in a file. It, it, it is also a troubling development that's now impossible to stop of kissing and telling, uh, whether it's French kissing or not, don't know, Al. But, but, but the, the people who work for major uh, figures, politicians, uh, once upon a time kept the secrets. And I remember when I worked in, in Joe Ford's White House, for, for the late uh, Jim Cannon, the Ford biographer, he always talked about how um, you don't go tell stories out of school. It was, uh, but, but, but I think starting in some ways with, with Bill Clinton and George Stephanopoulos and his sort of tell-all book, of, uh, Divulging Secrets, is sort of the front end. It probably wasn't the beginning, but the front end of a wave of sharing and telling and and thinking that you're important and getting some digs in. And now what these guys, uh, the authors of this latest book have showed, and they showed it four years ago, is that all sorts of people can't wait to talk to them. And that, that there was a rumor that they would invite these guys over, give them booze, give them a nice meal, and they would just start talking. And then it turned out you didn't have to give them booze. You didn't have to feed them. They were so anxious to talk, tell their stories, and plate their importance. Uh, and it's unfortunate that... Uh, they're the people who every time a political book go out, uh, comes out, goes straight to the bookstore and goes to the index. We're going to take a break here. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the Virginia race that's going on. Uh, just a total, total dirty, dirty race. I have to shower now after we do that segment. <laughs> this is Back on Pop and Slack from Shelly's Back Room. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., 
Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Back from Politics Live on Block Talk Radio. And yeah, that little outburst was your moderator going, hell yeah, we're back live. Uh, we had a little technical issue. We've resolved, thanks to the folks at uh, Skype and Block Talk Radio. Uh, we're here with our special guest, former Republican National Committee Chairman, Frank Ferenkoff. 
Uh, we're going to continue our election day coverage about what's going on in the Virginia race. Now, there are so many stories about what's going on politically in Virginia. Let's start with the obvious. Mr. Chairman, this has got to be one of the dirtiest, ugliest, blood-fest governor's races we've seen in a while. Uh, Why do you say that? <laughs> well, because I can't watch TV without somebody accusing Ken Cuccinelli of murdering 50 people in Norfolk and people accusing Terry McAuliffe of running sweatshops in Chesapeake. It is brutal. When, first of all, let's look at Ken Cuccinelli. Ken Cuccinelli became the Republican nominee after the Republican Party and the state agreed, we're going to do this as a convention, not as a primary. Stupid, stupid decision. Why was that stupid? You, you know, when you have a system that works, and then you have a group that comes in and takes over, is afraid of doing a primary, and wants to manage the convention, and manage the nomination, uh, rather than letting Republicans or Democrats in the state, this making a difference what party it is, uh, and engineer taking it away from the voters, uh, I think that's a stupid decision. I think myself, and I don't know Mr. Bowling, I've never met him in my life, uh, but I think this would have been a very different race uh, if he had been the nominee, and I think he probably would have won the primary. Uh, Bob Hines. Well, you know, it seems to me that uh, Cuccinelli and his team uh, pushed for a uh, convention because that was the only way he could have beaten Bill Bowling uh, out of the nomination. And I think that's, that, I mean, that just shows you what, what happens when somebody's ego gets in the way of, of, the, of, the, polit of the political situation in their own party. In, Congressman Al. In addition to which, party conventions, and this can go all the way down to the county convention, the state convention, whatever, <clears throat> once it gets taken over by people who are not primarily middle-of-the-road Democrats or Republicans or what have you, and are taken over by people who uh, who are dragging their party somewhere. Uh, it, it is going to be a disaster. It, it happened to the Democrats back during the new McGovern rules back in those days. It was dreadful, and it happened. Uh, it happened there. It is. It is it is non small d democratic to do it that way. But Mr. Uh, Alan Moore first. Yeah, I just. Um, I don't think any of us know what would have happened had there been a primary. And in the, in, the, in the state of Virginia, when you have a primary, anybody can show up. So sometimes you can uh, you get you get uh, Democrats to show up in a Republican primary, and you'll get or get Republicans to show up in a Democratic primary. Um, this stuff happens in Virginia and in other states. One of the things about a primary election, though, is that both candidates, or if there's multiple candidates, they all learn stuff. They get some practice. They typically have some debates. There's a, there's a process of evolving and developing as a candidate that is healthy for later when you're in a general election. I don't know if Bowling would, would have won or not. He may well have. Um, but if Cuccinelli had, had prevailed in the primary, he would have been a better, better candidate yeah, later. That's very good. And, and, and uh, having said that, <laughs> Cooch, as people like to call him, back to your, your question, Al, about how, how much uh, flexibility we have in going in different directions in our conversation. Yes. Uh, I won't say any more than that. <laughs> um, uh, 
<laughs> Cooch uh, has, has some real, real problems and shortcomings as a candidate, given where his emphasis has been, positions he's taken, uh, and the ammunition that he gave to the Democrats, uh, uh, the McAuliffe folks, who've got, uh, in, in the last few weeks, ten times the amount of money that, that Cuccinelli does, to just tear him apart on positions that he has taken and but been not only that, with. Alan, who was the brilliant tactician who decided in a state where some 30%, 35% of people work for the government to bring Ted Cruz in the campaign? I mean, I mean, how brilliant was that as a strategic... But, but Mr. Chairman, respectfully, respectfully, you're talking about a state. I mean, let's call it what it is. This was a, and I'm going to say this openly, this was a party in Virginia that was hijacked by a, a conservative, ultra-conservative, right-wing Tea Party base that forced the hand to go to a convention election of a candidate versus the traditional primary vote. So the question then becomes is, if that's the case, how does the RNC get involved and say, look, you're not giving us the best chance to win. That's what we're supposed to do. Well, the RNC can't do it. It's got to be state organization. I, I come from the state of Nevada, and the state of Nevada was taken over by the yep. Paul people, yep. taken over completely. Uh -huh. um, and it, it was because the, the party people weren't on their toes, and they let, allowed it to happen. I mean, that's grassroots politics. You know, there's a lot of criticism of people who have been elected by the Tea Party. But if you go back to, I think, the Founding Fathers, and you're a House member, and you've gone out and you've campaigned a certain way, and you've been supported by people, and you've said, I'm going to do this if you elect me, what are you supposed to do? I mean, you get to Congress, you're supposed to keep your word, or you're not going to be around for the next election. I mean, so you've got a conflict here between what may be in the best interest of the party and the country in the long run, and what's in the best interest of, of the people who elected you in your district, because you're supposed to elect them. Al was responsible to second district or whatever it was. Yeah. In Washington, you were responsible. You went, you met with them, you said, if you elect me, here's what I'm going to do. If he went and turned around and did the opposite, he wouldn't have been there as long as he was there. So there's a conflict there. But at what point do, you know, going back to a story that we've told many times on, on, this, on this show, uh, the speaker, was it Tom Foley, I believe, yeah. brought everybody in and said, look, are you here to govern? Or are you here to get reelected? No, that was Jim. Uh, Jim, Wright. Jim Wright. Jim Wright. Jim Wright. Jim Wright. Again, that question stands firm today. Are you here to govern, or are you here to get reelected? Where well, do you balance? You know, and I, I, there was a very interesting article in yesterday's Post, I believe, talking about the Christie campaign, and there was a quote. I cut it out. I should have brought it with me where Governor Christie says, when asked by a reporter about what's going on in the Republican Party, and he said something that I agree with, that too many Republicans today, writ large Republicans, are, more, are not as much interested in winning elections as in winning arguments. And you have to win elections to change things. If you're unhappy with the way things are going, you've got to win to be in a position to change things. And so there comes a moment where you have to base, balance your philosophy against whether or not you can be successful in winning elections. Because unless your candidate gets elected, there's not going to be someone who's going to carry your philosophy. Congressman Al. There is a, <clears throat> I saw it, 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 
in the Whatcom County level of, of democratic politics, where there were people who would every election show up and pick the most left-wing possible candidate, and he would lose, and you'd never see him again. In short, they thought the only important election was the primary. And when they didn't get what they want there, they went away. Well, thank God they went away because they were a problem. But it, it, it just, uh, both parties have got them, and they're, they're hard well, to control. Really what's happened, Chairman, what, what's really happened is there, there I, and I may be off by a couple of numbers here. I think there are 201 Democrats mm -hmm. in the House. Mm -hmm. 96% of them were elected in districts carried by President Obama. I think there are 234 Republicans in the House. I could be off a couple either way with these. 93% of them were won in districts carried by the governor, by Romney, mm -hmm. which means that they're fundamentally safe seats. And that's why we, you're lucky if you have 40 or 50 seats in the House anymore that are really up for grabs. And therefore, if you're an incumbent in that seat, your danger is not in the general election. Your danger has become in the primary election. And if you're a Republican, you're going to get run out from the right. It's going to force you to take more right positions. If you're a Democrat, you're going to be run out from the left. It's going to force you. And what's happened is the blue dogs are gone. There are no more blue dog Democrats uh, in the House, uh, conservative uh, Democrats. And there are no more moderate Republicans in the House. They're gone. And it was the, it was the glue, uh, or not glue, maybe a better clay that was used to bring people together so you could find consensus. It's gone. But we see, you know, when we, when we talk about the, you know, the blue dogs. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, we we do see people like Senator Manchin. We do see on the Republican side people like uh, Susan Collins. You're talking about the Senate. He's talking about the Senate. Senate. He's talking about the House. Game. But yeah. even in the House, is 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 it? Is it that disparate right now? Is that something that the parties on both sides should be worried about? I'll tell you what. I, now, I, it's a, I was a state chairman for eight years before I was a national chairman for eight years. And so I love to be in position to, to draw the boundaries on reapportionment. But we've got to do something. Mm -hmm. We've got to do something or we're going to be stalemated in the House forever. Now, I'm not sure what it is. I don't think you can go back and... and and, and try to change in every state how they reapportion and who doesn't. I, I've taken a real hard look. I, I'm sorry to say this, and some of my friends will be angry at me, at this open primary where the top two go against each other. So Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, everyone get in the primary. And the top two vote-getters are the ones that go in the general election. We had, in California, we ended up with Sherman and Berman, Berman yes, right. two really yeah. strong uh, experienced, very competent Democrat House members who ended up having to run against each other. Right. But what that does is I think it takes a little of the partisanship out of what goes on uh, in the House. I, I'm looking at it. I haven't decided you're, yet. I was going to say, I hope you're not going to the Capitol Hill Club after this. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Carl Tubin, when we look at the Virginia race, they're talking about record low numbers. I've heard people say as low as 38% turnout. Uh, this is literally a race of who sucks less well, is going to become the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Well, and I, I can tell you that, that I was worried whether I was going to get the vote because I had a very busy day. But I finally got there, and I walked in, showed my identification. They, had, I, I voted, 
and I walked out. There was no line at all. And uh, as contrasted with two years ago, where I waited in line a long time. In short, I can verify that there's a very low turnout. In well, that brings up, I mean, that brings up a good point here is one of the things that, uh, you know, I've seen in, uh, in, in the Virginian and the Pilot Dispatch is that the black community in Virginia is just so fed up with the race and the candidates that have been brought before them. They're talking about staying home. Uh, is that, that's obviously an advantage a little bit to Cuccinelli. Bob Hines? Well, it may be an advantage a little bit to catch Cuccinelli, but he's got so many, he caused himself so much trouble from some of the positions he held off that there, it wouldn't have made any difference if every black citizen in Virginia voted for him. I and the say. libertarians. And the the libertarians. Yeah, we're going to talk yeah. about service in a second, but uh, I, want to go to, I want to go to you, Carl Tubin. I think, I think also in Cuccinelli's situation, it's his, you know, he, he has his views, they're his views, etc. But then to go out and to pick someone, I think, for lieutenant governor, who even is to the right of him, kind of... Which wasn't easy to find. <laughs> but doing that, doing that just accentuated all his negatives and didn't give him any chance to have a positive. No. Denise Crabb. I, mean, I can tell you from the female perspective, the medical procedure that he wanted women to undergo if they wanted an abortion was not only highly invasive, but absolutely insane. So, sir, Mr. Cuccinelli, if you want that for us, what are you willing to endure? Because quite frankly, it's not a simple procedure. Gender gap is probably going to be about 20, 25%. Yeah. 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 But, but, but again, you know, you're talking about, Mr. Chairman, you're talking about a state that is, I mean, purple as purple can be. Uh, you've got Northern Virginia, and you've got even parts of Northern Virginia that swing a little bit red. Looks like Loudon's going to go for McAuliffe. It looks like some of the other areas, Prince William might be going for McAuliffe. That's got to give Cuccinelli just a hard road to climb to even think about even getting elected. But you know the wisdom, the wisdom of the, the Commonwealth of Virginia is that the governor only gets four years to screw up and then he's out. <laughs> <laughs> So we don't have to. So we only have to deal with who sucks less for four years. That, that makes me feel so much better. That's why I live in the District of Columbia, kids. Oh wow! Easy, 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 easy. 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 Yeah, the DC, you're gonna have a lifetime of yeah. screw up. And I'm on the Republican Executive Committee. That's a funny thing. So I, I want, Alan Moore. Yeah. The the. Uh, <laughs> The irony about about this, we're talking about all the Cuccinelli's problems, and of course, that that's a target-rich environment. Um, the thought that Terry McAuliffe, with his background, <laughs> could become the governor is really an extraordinary statement. The only reason there's even any little bit of question at all now, given all of the self-inflicted wounds. Uh, of, of the cooch is that that uh, By the way, this that's is a Terry show. That's Terry That's what they. I mean, I'm just picking it up from yeah, all right, all right, all right. the Washington Post and elsewhere. Right. 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 So where's your mind, my friend? <laughs> so French kissing so, the governor of New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We just don't want to put those two together, do we? So, so we've got this Terry McAuliffe, this sort of 
carpet bagging, sleazy. He's the guy you want to take a shower after you've talked to. He he got he got rich with all these cronyist connections. He's 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 a great schmoozer, lots of enthusiasm, terrific fundraiser. Anybody who can, as I've said this before, anybody who can be a friend of both Bill and Hillary Clinton, you really want to wonder about what's, uh, what's that all about? That just doesn't happen. Um, but but uh, he he. Uh, <laughs> he he was a, an investor in this company that was identifying dying people so they could take out life insurance on them. And he said, oh, I didn't realize that's what they did. Uh, the, the, the head of that company is in jail for the, the work of that company. And he his $100,000 investment in Global Crossing netted $8 million before it went bankrupt. I mean, it's just... Issue after and issue, and he still has to issue. answer the issue with the visas. And he, yeah. he's, I mean, he used this visa scam for his green tech little car company. Uh, he brags in certain circles about getting an F rating from the from the uh, NRA. This is this is not the profile of what you would expect uh, to be Virginia. elected in Virginia. And it, I just hope, hope, hope that that the that the far right wing will pay attention to this uh, and blame and place blame where it belongs, which is on the process that allowed a, a in, in this particular year against Terry McAuliffe, a candidate who could actually lose to him. Right. Uh, uh, Congressman Allen. On the other hand, in a more positive way, <coughs> just think, <coughs> Virginians won't have to change their mind about how honest their governor is. <laughs> Good point. I didn't think about that aspect. That's brilliant. Congressman Al, Congressman couldn't be happier. But, but Congressman Al, I, I, I've got to ask you this question. Before we go to break, I want to ask you this question because we're going to talk about the, we're going to talk about the other Virginia races, which are just as entertaining. When you went up to the booth, how did you vote for McCall? I, I mean, how? How did I? I mean, did you feel 100% that you were doing the right thing, or no, 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 did no. you actually consider voting for somebody like a Sarvis? There's a, there's an expression that you hear on the House floor regularly on some very tough votes that are very complicated and what have you, and and, and you're here kind of about 50 point. Three percent more favorable, and the phrase is, "I held my nose and voted for it." And that's is that what you did I, today? That's what I did today. Bob Hines, how do you vote for Cooch? I didn't. Wow, you voted for Sarvis. Yes. Now Sarvis is a is a game changer. How big of a game changer is he? I don't know how, and I'm not really concerned about it. What I was trying to say was I don't like the way the Republicans are operating. I don't like the procedures. I don't like the candidates that, that, that they brought forth. And as far as I'm concerned, I've never, never voted the way I did in t today. I've never in my, in my life voted that way. I was just so fed up with Cuccinelli 
uh, Reverend Jackson. Or, well, we're going to talk about him it, in the next it, segment. It, this is just, it was just so terrible as far as I was concerned. I wanted to send a message to my party that they better shape up if they expect me to vote for them. Alan Moore? Yeah, I mean, what, what Bob and I and everybody at this table, I suspect, has on occasion done what Al did, which is hold her nose and vote for a candidate from time to time. This is an unusual one in Virginia where I also live, and, and I also could not bring myself to vote for either one of those two guys. There is another option that, that's available, and that is you can write in somebody, that, uh, which is what I happen to do. But, the, but the, the fact of the matter is what you can do is by showing how many voters didn't go either way, hopefully will we'll tell those people who pay attention, service should not have gotten more than 3 or 4%. Um, he can get double-digit results. If he gets 10 or 11, that also is a data point that people can't ignore when thinking about Actually, the you know, I'm from Nevada, and we have a better way of doing it. We have, some, we have a line called none of the above. Right. right. And in a number of cases, particularly in the primaries, Democrat and Republican, none of the above is one. <laughs> As a former state uh, party ED yourself, does what Alan talk about, that scenario, is that a wake-up call for the chairman? I think, I think it's a wake-up call for everybody who, who looks at this election, <clears throat> who looks at this election, see how outrageous it came on, on the Republican side, not even counting the Democratic side, but just on the Republican side. And it, it, I think the Tea Party and the rest of the Republican Party have to say, look, look what a disaster this was, and analyze it from that standpoint. All right. And now also the other thing is my Virginia driver's license didn't come in time, so I couldn't vote in Virginia. Good. Good. Because you would have voted for Terry McCullough. We're going to take a break here. We're going to take a break here. By the way, it's happy hour here at Shelley's Back Room, which means that we're going to order our, our cocktails. We're going to cut open our cigars. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the other races in Virginia, again, which are just as equally as bizarre and amusing. And then uh, spend a little time talking to Chairman Farenkopf about what might be happening in 2014 and even 2016. And... Do we really need the political boss system back in play? I'll tell you right now, man, we need a good political boss again. I love these folks, Phil Green. This is Backroom Politics. You're in one. This is Backroom Politics. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller. Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331. F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu, the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. 
However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again, I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's happy hour here at Backroom Politics for our second hour. Joining us uh, very graciously for our second hour is former RNC chairman Frank Ferenkoff, giving us a little bit of election day analysis on what's going on. We're going to continue our discussion for a second here, uh, what's going on in Virginia. Uh, we, we mentioned Sarvis a little bit beforehand, and, and I want to bring up Sarvis now. We're seeing what could be an anomaly in results that could be coming in for a third-party libertarian candidate who wasn't even a blip on the radar six months ago and is now getting some, some pretty serious coverage, at least in Virginia. So when, when we look at this, Mr. Chairman, I want to start with you. Is this possibly another chink in the armor for the two-party system? Is this almost another pilot light for looking at a possible third party coming into fruition, whether it's libertarian or independent or however it might look, I've been I've been through third parties a lot. Uh, you know, most people don't give George Wallace enough credit for what he did. He he did a hell of a job as a third party candidate. He won a lot of states, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. I also went through Perot with the debate commission because right. you remember we we. We uh, had Ross in the, the debates in 1992 uh, in the general election debates. Very, very difficult in our system to create a third party. Just very, very difficult. So it's going to be state by state where you'll have these things happen. I don't know this gentleman. Uh, he actually sensed, I think, the unhappiness of both parties with the candidates and decided to run. And uh, what did he have to lose? Not much. Yeah, well, other than a little bit of personal money putting up front, not much not at much. all, though. Yeah. Uh, but when we when we see a, a service, it, it, it's almost like again Perot. You know, did Perot cause uh, George H. W. Bush his second term? Yeah, he did. 
is is Sarvis going to be the catalyst that could keep the Democrats in power or put the Democrats in power in the governor's mansion in Richmond? Could be. I don't know. We're going to have to see how much. I, I doubt it. I just don't think the end. I, I could be wrong because I'm not an expert in Virginia politics, even though I'm a Virginian now. Uh, it's going to depend. We're going to have to see whether this race, everyone was saying it was closing here in the last week or so. Uh, and, and it could be that it would make the difference, but I, I'm not sure. Alan Moore? Uh, a comment on the closing, but I think there's this great irony that, that after Obamacare passed, Cuccinelli was the first attorney general who challenged it in court. But only started running the ads in the last few days. Right. Now, he, he lost, and others uh, pursued it. It kind of went away for him until the last month, when all of a sudden, he... He, he, Cuccinelli, was trying to say, oh, I was out there first attacking this. And, and, and ironically, the irony is that a guy who had to stay away from the Obamacare issue for most of his campaign is probably going to close the gap to some degree because of Obamacare, that he had a little bit of credibility for attacking it early. And the president, when he came to Virginia in the last few days and stood with McAuliffe and began talking about Obamacare was getting a non-response from even these Democratic audiences. And, and uh, in, a, in an odd way, for the moment, we'll see that the future is going to tell the story uh, uh, about Obamacare. But that issue is now actually helping Cuccinelli in these closing days. I want to congratulate you for getting Obamacare into this program. <laughs> It was hard. Cities crap. Well, from the political side, I'd like to see what happens in southwest Virginia. It, it, that'll be very telling to see if Cuccinelli gets the votes or the Libertarian gets the votes. Because southwest Virginia is historically a very conservative part of the state. It, it, it's not a uh, Alexandria. It's not an Arlington. It, it's uh, folks who've been there uh, for generations who are much more conservative. So that, that's an area I'd be very curious to see as well as the area around Norfolk and Hampton Roads, heavily military, heavily retirees. Let's see how they vote. And, and I want to say let's see, because I think we collectively, both Democrats and Republicans, need to see this. Republicans in how much did we lose and how badly did we lose in our traditional base. But Democrats of what happened to the Republicans and let's make sure it doesn't happen to us. Well, that brings up a good point, though. I mean, Ch Chairman uh, Ferenkopf, when we look at Southwest Virginia, we're talking about an area that is largely about coal, guns, and babies, and gone. That's Republican base right there. Uh, but McAuliffe was getting a lot of business support from folks down in Southwest Virginia. Is that something that you think McAuliffe could possibly make inroads on? I don't know. Really? Is that, I mean, people that's supposed to say, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, very good. The other question I have for you is, does, does Ken Cuccinelli get punished for the government shutdown and the budget fight? Absolutely, he gets killed. But, but he added to his own misery by bringing in, as I said, Cruz. I mean, the ads, I live in Virginia, driving to work every day, hearing, guess who came in? The, the architect of closing down your jobs. When you have so many people who were... The sub now, I don't have a hell of a lot. I've got to tell you, this is probably bad news. I'll get someone to do something to my house. It's interesting that federal employees finally realize what people in the private sector have to put up with. When the economy is bad, people in the private sector get laid off. 
If you're in a government job, you never have to worry about that. Well, now they had to worry because government was shut down. So they're now seeing what it's like to be out there when you've got to work hard and keep a job, not necessarily just work for the government. But be that as it may, I think bringing crews in amplified. It just really added to what he was already going to get. There was a ve- some very effective ads saying about, and I don't know whether it's true or not, that when uh, Cuccinelli actually supported closing down the legislature, the legislature doing certain things to close down government of Virginia. So I, I think he also hurt himself by, by the campaigning rant. Wow. Uh, real quick, we want to sw- sw- shift gears a little bit and uh, talk about what's going on. The other big race that everybody's looking at is what looks like going to be a landslide for the uh, for Gracie Mansion up in New York City, the mayor's race in New York City. Uh, for the first time since 1989, it looks like the Democrats might retake the uh, the governor's or the uh, mayor's house in New York City. Um, but as Republicans, why should they be concerned about that, Mr. Chairman? Uh, I don't think they are. I think what they're really? all doing, yeah, I think right now they're all looking for houses in Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're talking of... <laughs> they're doing what the French are doing. My son-in-law, ran, my son-in-law ran for governor of Connecticut three years ago, Tom Foley. Right. And he's probably going to run again uh, uh, next year. Oh, okay. And uh, he's already sent out an ad or put on his on his website, New Yorkers, look at Connecticut. Come on up here. Tax is going to be a hell of a lot less. And it's a high-tax state, but it's going to be a hell of a lot less than it is in New York City. Uh, does, Bob Hines, does it surprise you the fact that the Republicans actually held Gracie Mansion since 1989 in a city like New York? Well, you re- if you remember what New York was like... Uh, Pre-1989. Pre-1989, you can understand how some of the New York voters decided to vote the other way, and they got some pretty good, uh, they got some pretty good governors, uh, pretty good mayors, good mayors there, and that our friend Rudy Giuliani, yeah, and, and, uh, and, and Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg, but, but, but Congressman Al, Bloomberg is a Republican of convenience. Correct. He was a Democrat, so yeah. everybody knew he was a Democrat. The Democrats wouldn't play with him, so he said, "Screw them, yeah. well, right. switch parties." So I'm, I'm not sure this is such a... Well, that brings, that brings up another topic. We'll talk about it in a second, but Denise Kraft. Well, my question is, what is Bloomberg about to do? Uh, Bloomberg could create hell for both the Democrats and the Republicans because he has a sizable amount of money in his bank account. Deep pockets. And he could make certain decisions that could impact races, not only here in the United States, but there was a fascinating one talking about sodas and potato chips in Mexico. There's an article about that in the Washington Post this week how Bloomberg is trying to get into the international side as well. So watch out, folks. Bloomberg is just ready to fly. Well, the, you know, we, we talk about Bloomberg switching parties and everything like that. Uh, as we reported and broke the news last week, which we don't get a lot of credit for, but we broke this news last week, former Florida Republican governor, Charlie Crist, perpetual candidate for just about everything from supervisor of elections to president, uh, announced yesterday that he is going to be seeking the governor's mansion in Florida as a Democrat. Uh, Chairman Frank Varenkoff, Frank how much does that torque you, or does it? It doesn't torque me. I, I like to always think back. I'm a big Churchill fan, and 
Joseph said you can rat once, you can rat twice, but probably not three times. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he switched back and forth. Yeah. He, twice. He has, <laughs> he has. Uh, but, you know, there are, there are uh, uh, several politicians that were successful doing that. Uh, in fact, a couple of seated senators right now have gone back and forth. It's been an interesting race. Governor Scott has made some hard decisions down there. I really like Governor Scott. I've uh, spent some time with him. Uh, it'll be it'll be an interesting race. Uh, the, the dynamics of that race, uh, you know, when I talked earlier about what the president's campaign was able to do uh, in Florida, they registered 180, I think it was 185,000 uh, who were uh, Hispanics who were not previously registered, and they got them all to vote, and it switched Florida. And uh, the challenge for the Republican Party will be whether or not Chris is going to inherit that mechanism down there, whether the Republican Party will be able to meet it. Because, again, as I'm talking about, what, we, what Al Swift faced when he was running for office, what I faced when I was the party chairman and state party chairman before, it's a different world. It's a different world demographically and, uh, and with the 24-hour, uh, seven-day, New cycles. It's, it's a different world. Let's, let's talk about that for a second. Because, you know, we, we've talked about this point on several occasions about the strength of a central national party and the strength of a central state party versus the, you know, we're now seeing primaries used as, as verbs. I'm going to primary you. Have we lost sight of the true strength of the party system itself? Absolutely. Is that because we've had, and not to throw either Debbie Wasserman Schultz or Reince Priebus under the bus, is that because we've lost strong chairmen at the national no, level? because of the change in the campaign law. Every time you try to change the law to redirect money, it's always a mistake because money's like water. It'll only always find its way to the bottom where it's intended. And the McCain-Feingold changes, I think, destroyed the, the two major political parties, which if you really look at them, historically, were really broad-based. You had conservative Republicans, liberal Republicans, moderate Republicans, you had conservative Democrats. It destroyed that system that was out there. I mean, you now have small groups who you don't know anything about who can put millions and millions of dollars in the campaigns. It destroyed the two-party system. I think Debbie and, and Reince are doing a good job for what they've got to deal with. They've got a tough job. Reince probably more than Debbie because of his predecessor, who was a disaster for the Republican Party. Uh, his name was Not a big Michael Steele fan. Not, well, I, I didn't mention his name. You did. <laughs> and, uh, Reince, Priebus, Reince Priebus became the chairman of the Republican National Committee, sat for the first day at his desk, and the treasurer came in and said, there's no money in the bank, and all the credit cards have been canceled. So for the first month he was chairman of the party, he was operating on his own personal credit card. So Michael Steele was a disaster for the party. Nice guy. I like Michael. Campaigned for him when he ran for office in Maryland. But uh, I think both of them have a very difficult more task than I did, than Chuck Manat did, than um, uh, Paul Kirk did in my day during the 80s when we were chairman. Different world. Alan Moore. I want to I I ask, ask Frank to expand yeah. just a little bit because what we've got now is these independent players with very deep pockets, and I'm guessing they're here to stay. Now, some people try to blame 
the Citizens United case for that, including at this table, and I wonder about, I, I have felt that it, that was not what Citizens United did. That was, <laughs> that's pre-existing law going back to uh, the late 70s. Exactly right. And, and I just wonder if you would care to talk yeah, about I, you know, I don't want to get into the legal right. mechanics of it. We have counsel here who can do that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it has. It's, it's really it, When you start looking at the changing dynamics, when I was talking about what Al and I faced, with not only what you can do as, as private groups, what labor unions could do, what individuals who don't have to identify the source of their money can do, what the networks can do. You know, if you're a Republican and you reach across the aisle to do something with a Democrat and you're breaking the party mode, Fox News is going to kick the you-know-what out of you. If you're a Democrat who does that, Morning Joe and MSNBC is going to kick the crap out of you. I mean, to, to be someone who wants to reach across the aisle to find compromise, to find something that you believe is in the best interest of the American people, you, you're going to, you have to have a lot of courage. When, when Chuck Bannat passed and you were there, I had the great honor to, to, to moderate his memorial service. And I pointed out in that meeting, and you'll, Al, I hope you appreciate this. Bob Michael, who is now 91, I play golf with him on Friday, still plays 18 holes, <laughs> who, who told me that when he used to go home to Illinois on the breaks, he shared a car with Dan Rostenkowski, the Democrat yeah. leader of the House Ways and Means Committee. They knew each other. Their wives knew each other. Their children knew each other. And if you don't know someone, you can't trust someone. And I have said, jokingly, but I think it's true, the most dangerous place in Washington, D.C. is Ronald Reagan National Airport, International Airport, on a Thursday night. Because if you're not careful, you'll get stampeded. You'll get run over by all the members of the House and Democrats running for their planes to go home. These people don't know each other. There's no relationships between Republicans and Democrats, here, here. And, and if you don't have that, you can't reach compromise. You can't reach effective results. Carl Tubin. <clears throat> That's very true, and we, we all agree with that around this table. Uh, one, you mentioned Bob Michael, and I have to say one thing about the memorial service for uh, Tom Foley. Mm -hmm. And Bob Michael got up there, <clears throat> and one of the first things he said is that Tom Foley was the last Speaker of the whole Congress, and uh, it really, it really hit home uh, to me, and I hope it hit home to some other people who were in that room. But you know, Mr. Chairman, we we, we talk about bringing civility back to yeah. Congress. One of the things, or yeah. to politics as a whole, we've talked about the fact that the representatives, the senators, don't know each other anymore. There's no mutual respect anymore. But even further down than that. Where did we lose the point of people having mutual respect, being able to have civility in debate rather than the demagoguery that we see today? Where did was there a turning point in this? Was it was it was it Newt Gingrich and the contract with America? Was it the 24-hour news cycle? What was it? Oh, I, I think there are a lot of things that started. I mean, let's face it. Uh, Republicans were locked out of control in the House for 40, 45 years, how many years? Yeah. And they were treated like crap by the Democrat majority. So when uh, the Republicans regained control, 
you know, it, it was it was get even, wasn't it? So when uh, it was when when the Republicans retook control of the House, it was sort of get even time for for being treated badly. I I I also happen to think that the Clinton impeachment process was also extremely damaging to uh, the collegiality that existed. It, it really was, I'm not passing judgment on whether it should have been or not been, but I, I think it really damaged what went on. Uh, so I can't, pit, I don't think there's one point. I think it's a, it, it was over a period of time. Are we going to ever see the days of when you were chairman, Haley Barb was chairman, again of the true, true strategic decisions of the political strategy out even in your smallest county. I'm not, I'm not sure. You know, when I was chairman, uh, every other Tuesday we met in the cabinet room. The president was there. The vice president was there. The leadership at the, in those days was was Bob Michael. It was Dick Cheney. It was Trent Lott uh, on the Republican House side. It was Bob Dole. It was Al Simpson. It was Paul Laxall, so forth. And then we would have cabinet officers. I always sat behind the vice president. And we talked about what was going to happen in the next two weeks on the Hill, what was going to happen with policy decisions, what was going to happen. And we walked out of there united at what we were going to do. I would go back to the Republican National Committee. I would have op-eds written. I would have talking points written. We didn't have email in those days. We faxed them out to our people around the country. And we were involved in the process. I don't think that party chair, chairmen are involved to that extent anymore. We're sort of, the parties have become banks or fundraisers uh, and aren't involved in the strategy as we were back in those days. I think it's unfortunate, but I think what's happened is because of McCain-Feingold and some of the changes with hard money, soft money, parties can't do what they could do before. We can't even have the international programs. You know, Chuck Manat and I were instrumental in creating the National Endowment for Democracy, the International Republican Institute, the Democrat uh, Institute, and we could use soft money, and we did that. We had relationships with parties around the world, and we did democracy building. It doesn't exist anymore the way it did before because of the changes. Congressman Al. I, 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 I think that in addition to, to the, what's been named as some of the reasons for where we are now, I would add the Supreme Court decisions recently that I think uh, were disastrous. But some of the good government people, Ralph Nader, Fred Wertheimer, that whole crew, is, you know, has led, us, led us down the road where the public is convinced that money in politics is always a bad thing. Yeah. And <clears throat> one of the things that I, I do not understand, and I've told this to people and they kind of look slack job. I said, there are only three places where you can get the money. You can put it all in yourself, which means that Congress becomes a club of rich people. You can have public financing that I've always said the only people that are opposed to public financing are incumbents, challengers, and and, and the public. Yes. So that's not going to happen. The only other place to get the money is to get it from people who have some self-interest in it. And you're simply going to have to educate the public to say that what you really need is 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 uh, 
is disclosure. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Nice disclosure safety. so that the public knows where the money's coming from and who it goes to. Well, we had that. That was uh, PACs. PACs were one of the best systems we ever Correct. had, which Nader and Wertheimer and whatever proceeded to just attack and destroy so that it's very it's going to be very hard it seems to me to get back to where uh, you're, you're talking realistically about this you need every every incumbent was always out and denouncing of the money and the well it, that was the best we ever had well, my we had packs right now is, is what's about to happen in 2014. You know, I, I was a staffer uh, when the Democrats lost in the early 90s. Um, then I was in the minority when we were uh, when the Republicans were there. And then we came back into the majority in 2007. It was payback, and we weren't going to let the Republicans do anything. And then the Republicans won, and the Republicans did payback to the Democrats. And there's a possibility that it could be um, in 2014 payback, and the Democrats not. But I'm not sure if folks out there realize that when you flip back and forth so many times, you end up losing a lot of institutional knowledge. Um, when you have a committee, for example, um, two-thirds on the House side takes whatever side wins, and then one-third is whatever side does not have the majority. So when you flip, you end up firing a third of your staff, and the other side hires a third of its staff. So there's a, there's a lot of flux that happened um, back in 2007, and there was a lot of flux that happened in, in 2011, which hurt, I think, from the institutional perspective, because you lost a lot of good people who knew the subject matter. So if you had to depend on subject matter experts, they weren't there. And I think that subject matter expert brain drain is about to happen again, and I'll go to what Alan um, likes to call the Obamacare, because a lot of those staffers are now going to leave because they're afraid of what's about to happen to them on the health side. So we're about to see even more folks who might even be moderate, who know their stuff, they're going to leave. And I, and I think that's going to hurt us as a country as a whole because we need people who know the subject matters and we need people who know how to moderate positions, who need to be able to work yeah. you know, back and forth across the aisle. Denise is talking about a, about a problem that's, that's, on the one hand, it sounds like inside baseball. Like who, cares, who cares about congressional staff? They actually do matter, and when they and when they turn over and when they leave, the vacuum that's created is filled by the executive branch, which in in it becomes even more powerful. And the executive branch, as we've seen, is uh, increasingly um, uh, centered in power inside the White House with. Uh, cabinet agencies playing a smaller and smaller role, unless you need somebody to blame for stuff that doesn't go wrong, that goes wrong. Um, and uh, so th these are other trends that, although it's it's hard to find concrete examples to help uh, uh, people understand what's so bad about that. Um, uh, I think you think about in in your own world and and employees in your company when you lose experienced senior people unnecessarily it harms the enterprise and that's going on in government along with the, well you the, know when you politics. think back Al uh, where are those great statesmen well, in the Congress I, of the United States today I don't know what happened yeah. to that you've still got John Dingell 
<coughs> and I'm sure you've got some. Well, I happen to think John Boehner. Toughest he, job in Washington. If he, if he didn't have his foot nailed to the floor by the by the Tea Party, this this is a guy <coughs> who who wrote, helped write President Bush's education bill, and he did it with Ted Kennedy. So this is a guy who can who can find Congress. And, and I ne never understood why the Democrats. Uh, treated the Republicans the way they did because they didn't need to. You're the chairman. You got the votes eventually, and I can remember with with, uh, with Mike Oxley when, when he was my ranking Republican on the subcommittee I chair. And at the beginning of the session, he and I and whatever staff he wanted to bring, and I bought staff, and we we said, well, what do we want to do? This. And I knew what the Democratic plan was, and I said, "Now, Mike, what, 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 what do you people want?" And uh, <clears throat> not, not that I get the impression that I could give him everything he wanted, but uh, he said uh, one time was, "Could we have a hearing on uh, on an aspect of uh, of?" of uh, Forgive me. On legislation in which you would be able to make a cost-benefit ratio on the regulations and what have. Well, I didn't like where that was going uh, because I I think it could be abused. But uh, I, what on earth reason could you have to not have a hearing on it? Yeah, you know. And I sat there with the votes. You know, they weren't going to pass it, but why should I tell them they can't have a hearing on it? And we had a hearing on it, and it didn't go anywhere beyond that, but they they could participate, and they could get their ideas out in play. And uh, why so many chairs with all the votes couldn't treat Republicans, particularly when you had Republicans whom you trusted, like I did Mike Oxley, uh, it just seemed to me that that was unnecessary. And what it got down to is, but they did it to us before. You know, it's getting back. I remember Bob and I once sitting in the other room here. We're talking, and, 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 and we were talking about the, the impossibility of getting certain people approved for the Supreme Court or for judgeships. <clears throat> and uh, nice, uh, Bob pointed out, well, you guys did such and such to, uh, who, was the, who was the conservative that the Democrats wouldn't even... Bob Borg. Yeah, yes. And so I went to, uh, to a previous Democrat that I thought was maltreated by the Republicans. And Bob went back farther. To, uh, to and, and finally, I said, you know, we're going to get back to, to John Marshall. To John Marshall. <laughs> <laughs> How did he ever get there? That's, wow. That's, that's exactly right. Because you, you're never going to solve something if you're going to go back to, but you did it first. Yeah. You know, forget that crap and move ahead. Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk to uh, Chairman Farenkopf. Well, we've got you here. We would be remiss if we didn't talk about where the party's going 
and even look at 2014, 2016. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Time to run. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Backroom is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Backroom, Go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelly's Backroom, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties. Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, joining us uh, for the show today is a special guest, uh, former Republican National Committee Chairman Frank Ferenkoff, who will be back here in a second. Yeah, he left. He, he, well, <laughs> he st- you still beat him with the times he leaves the table. You leave every, every segment. Uh, so... Anyway, smaller bladder. Yeah, but yeah, exactly, exactly. But Chairman Frank, Chairman I want to come out and ask you. You know, the Republicans took what well, a lot of uh, political pundits saw was just a a, a non predictable beatdown in 2012. Uh, it was literally at that point. Some say Mitt Romney's to lose, and yet we saw a huge flow go towards President Obama. question I have is, number one, Tea Party. How bad is a Tea Party for the GOP, or is it even a factor that they consider? No, no, it's it's a problem right now. The question is whether it will continue to be a problem. Uh, And again, it's going to be state by state. It's not going to be something that's going to be uniform. Whether or not, when you lose races that you should win, and then you, you elect Democrats because you've been stupid, like you know we did in the senatorial races in Delaware and in Indiana, in Delaware, in Nevada. Nevada. I mean, where you had winnable races and you threw them away. There'd be four more Republican senators in the United States Senate right now, but for that, 
uh, back then. But again, I think I, I am not as down uh, with regard to the future, and I'll tell you why. As I indicated earlier, uh, Governor Romney won most of the constituencies that you normally won in the, in the 80s and 90s to win the presidency. And talk about women voters, for example. Uh, he won women, white women by 40, 14%. He won married women. He won women with children. So it wasn't just automatic. It was the 18 to 29-year-old women that he lost, and he won big time among Hispanic and blacks. I, my own view is, and it's going to be interesting to see the turnout in this election and again in 2014, whether or not a minority voters will turn out without a minority at the head of the ticket. Um, President Obama and most Americans, I believe that Republicans, Democrats, and Independents were proud that our country elected a black as president. I think it proved, all of us were proud, whether you supported him or didn't, that our country was out there and we were able to do that. Uh, it's a different question as to whether or not he's done a good job as president. I'm not there. I, at this point in time, after five years, I'm, I'm a Westerner, so I'm sort of, you know, big hat, no cattle. Right. My, and from, my, from my viewpoint. But we're proud of it. But it really energized, particularly in 2012, even more than in t 2008. Believe it or not, Asian voters, who typically were a little bit more conservative than liberal, turned out at a higher percentage for President Obama than Hispanic voters did. So there's a lot of questions as to what the mix is going to be. And, and, and I hope someday, and I hope you'll invite me back, because I feel very, very strongly about the immigration issue. I feel very strongly at this point, I'm very supportive of the bipartisan bill that came out of the Senate. I think it ought to be approved. It's a tough damn bill. It's a very tough bill. And the Republican Party, I think, have got to deal with that. Very important to deal with it with Hispanic voters who naturally ought to tend to the Republican Party if we hadn't driven them away. Uh, so I, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic about the future. Well, let, let, let's look about 20. Let's let's jump ahead towards 2016. Throw okay. a couple of names yeah. at you. Get your thoughts yeah. on it. Ted Cruz. Do you have another name you want to throw at me? Uh, sure. Well, <laughs> let me ask you this question. Let me ask you this question. How mad are you at Kay Bailey Hutchison? <laughs> uh, I'm not mad at Kay. I mean, listen, Ted Cruz. Uh, as, as we saw when he went back home after the break, uh, his constituents are supporting him. His challenge is, you know, whether or not he can be reelected uh, when he's going to run again. Uh, I think he was destructive of, of the party. I think he did it for his own ego. I think he's very articulate. I think he's very, very smart, and he represents an, an element in the party. But I think when it came down, well, actually, I was kind of, he came up the other day and backed off, and he said he was not going to support the movement to run against incumbent Republican senators uh, in in uh, next year's election, uh, or in the next, next, cycle. next cycle, next cycle, and which I think it was it was great because okay. now a lot of that, as you know, the Republican senatorial committee said they're they're not going to uh, do business with the one firm that's been representing a lot of the candidates who are running against Republican incumbents, and I and I salute them for that. But you know he's now on the map. He's, uh, he, you know, he'll, you'll see him on the Sunday talk shows and all of the Sunday talk shows. Now, whether he can do anything with what he's done, but I, I find it hard to believe he'll be a credible candidate for president, but we got a long ways to go. Rand Paul. Uh, he surprised me, actually. He's a lot more reasonable than his father. <laughs> uh, he is. He's a lot more reasonable. He makes some sense. Uh, whether or not that base is there, I mean, he's inheriting from his dad. Uh, 
uh, you know, a group of Republicans. Presidential uh, credibility? I think he's got some, but whether or not, uh, you know, he'll be able to do it. I mean, as I say, we're a long way away. I, if I had to choose right now, if I said, Berenkoff, who are you going to support for president? You've got to choose now. You can't wait two years. I would love to see, say, a Christy Rubio ticket. Wow. To me, that brings a, a nice mix. Uh, well, you what, what about, well you, you know, the interesting... When you talk about that, Chris Christie was uh, running around a large part of New Jersey with the governor of New Mexico. Up and come, is she an up and come? Martinez, oh, she's very good. Do you do you possibly foresee Martinez becoming a rising star? That could be. That could be. We've got a great Hispanic governor in Nevada. Yeah, who's a very. I mean, so I think it's very very important. I mean, I could see Brian Sandoval, very young, but I like the, the idea of Martinez brings a woman to the ticket. And what I've learned long ago is the Hispanic vote is not monolithic. You've got Cubans, you've got Mexicans, you've got people from Latin America. I mean, when I was chairman, I learned to live with this. So they all loved Ronald Reagan, but there were different. So there's a lot of factors. But I'm hoping that these are factors that are taken into consideration by the Republican Party. The demographics have changed. We've got to well, be really. Let me, let, me, let me just touch on that real quick. You know, the, the, one of the faults that I've heard, at least here in D.C., from Republican insiders, uh, and Great I know this party here in D.C. By the way, we, we do. We do. And, and by the way, uh, Chairman Ron Phillips is doing what he can. <laughs> Tough job. But uh, when you look, we, some of the folks that we've talked to is the log cabin Republicans were largely alienated. Uh, as part of a Tea Party rebellion inside the party, this is a sector of the Republican Party that would print money religiously. The world has changed. Can we get them back into the, the fold? I think they're Republicans. I think we've got to realize that not only demographics have changed, but public attitudes have changed. I'm, I'm, I'm a Catholic. I'm, 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 my views on abortion will... You know, I'm not against it all. I've changed. I have three daughters and a wife who beat the hell out of me for a long time, and I'm realistic. The world has changed in certain ways, and if the party doesn't realize that, uh, they're going to continue to lose. Can the party lose the religious right aspects of the platform? Is that a possibility in the future? Who gives a shit about the platform? Come on, you know. <laughs> By the way, family show, Mr. Chairman. But thanks. Thanks a lot. Yeah, shocking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a word here. Yeah, yeah, I know. Thank God. Uh, I mean, what, no, no, I mean, no. I mean, we, we hear a lot. You know, listen, hear about, but Al, I'll touch on this a little bit. The people who go to the national convention, the Democrats who go to the convention, are part of the left of the mainstream Democrats. The Republicans who go to the conventions, and I've done two of them when I was chairman of, they're far to the right of the midstream. And so they, they go through the process. Everyone feels good. They do the platform. The candidates don't care about the platforms, realistically. If you were to ask the president whether or not he would have supported everything that was in the Democratic platform, uh, he would have said no, and the same thing would have been we Can we bring the log cabin Republicans back into the fold? Can we embrace them? I hope so. Can I we hope embrace so. the African-American and Latino Republicans I hope so. that were largely alienated in 2012? That they were, and, and not only in 2012. I think earlier, too. So I think the party's got to be a little bit more realistic about where we're going. Or we can just lose. Have you seen, have you seen the plan for progress ahead? For the yeah, GOP? yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought what do you think? Very, I think they did a very good job. I think they did a very effective job, and I give Reince Priebus a lot of credit for having the guts and some other parts of the anatomy uh, for having done that. Uh, it was not easy for him to order that. Not was it done in a vacuum, or are they living in a dream world, or is this real? No, I think it's real. Okay, fair enough. Denise Crow. All right, just let me be honest. 
my nightmare as a Democrat would be Christie as the head of the ticket with a Hispanic governor as the vice president. Mario, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. no. He, he, he's not going to get the Mexican, the Guatemalan, the other Hispanic. He's Cuban, he's I understand Cuban. He's yeah. not going to get it. I'll I, I tell you what, I, you know, watching, watching Chris Christie around with uh, Governor Martinez from New Mexico the other day, Strong. She gets, strong she gets the speech. best speech she I did. thought at the convention. Right, well, she, and she also she also gave some great talking points outside the tour bus in New Jersey yesterday. Yeah. Uh, I mean, talking about look, we govern for the whole. This is not about party politics. It almost seems, Mr. Chairman, that that's something that a large moderate base or the silent majority base of moderates are looking for in that party. Is it a reality? Can we bring them in? I think we can. How? by choosing candidates who are more realistic as to what the world has changed to. You're not talking about Ted Cruz. You're not talking about Rand Paul. I'm you're not. you're I'm not. not talking about them. Let them run. I mean, I, I, you know, that's what the discussion is about. You've got to have... And I, you were yeah. talking. We interrupted no, you. So no, 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 no. I, I was going to say, the reason that is your strongest <clears throat> candidate is because you have two proven governors that know how to lead. And that's what's going to be concerning to me as the Democrat is that if we've come off of eight years with President Obama, and I was a political appointee during the first term, that we came in with a president who hadn't led a state, who hadn't led a business. And that's right. going to be the comparison that's going right. to come. Right. And that's why I'm going to urge my own party to say we have got to go through that business community. We've got to go through the governors. We've got to go through others and say, who wants to ante up? Because we need people like that. Congressman Al? That is one of my great worries. <clears throat> Since Newt Gingrich, the Democrats have been able to sit back, say nothing, relatively speaking, and let the Republicans dig themselves a big hole. Right. And the, the day when the Nancy Pelosi's of the Democratic Party feel they can now move back into real leadership, I think it will be too far to the left, and the, the Democrats will begin to make the same mistakes the Republicans have made. Bob Hines. I think that what I've heard here, what Frank is saying, is exactly where I hope things happen, how it works out. We have several governors, uh, Christie is one, Sandoval is another, Martinez. Uh, Martinez is a third. We have some, Jindal is a possibility. We have some yep. really excellent governors who have managed things who have actually had to do things, meet budgets, organize, structure. And we have some really good people there, and let's hope that that's where our candidates come from. I hope the political gods are hearing you. I hope. Carl Tubman, you got the last word real quick. One minute. One of the things that has to happen, I think, in order for that to happen, is that in 214, the Democrats knock off a bunch of the Tea Party people to put the Tea Party in their place or else the Tea Party is going to drag the Republican Party and you're going to have a fight on the right. Carl, I don't think that, I'll tell you what, you, you've now got individuals, we were talking about some of the private funding agencies, we've got people in the Republican Party who are now going to fight the Tea Party, they're going to fight, what's the other organization that supports the... Uh, MoveOn.org. Uh, well, well, or, yeah. no, 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 Heritage. Heritage, Heritage yeah. are, going to, are going to put money in against us. They're not going to allow <laughs> it to happen. They're not going to allow us to end up with candidates that we were before. So there's a counterbalance now. So I think it's going to be very – I'm not sure it's going to work, but I right. think your point's right. well taken, but it's a question of whether it'll happen. Yeah. Real quickly, Bob. You know, 
up in up in uh, Grand Rapids, the uh, congressman who was extremely to a right side. Justin Amos. Yeah. And they, the, the, the business community up there has turned against them publicly, and they're financing another... I know, I know Rich DeVos is putting a lot of yeah, money... Yeah. Is, he he would. He's the only him. one. The rest of them are against him. And it's, it's a wonderful thing to see local people saying, enough of this. Enough of this Tea Party stuff. We have to find people who are willing to cut deals, get things done, and work forward rather than just being pure. Agreed. Last, last, yeah, couple, yeah. Oh, last couple of questions. One that's close to me. People, uh, even though he's lost a lot of weight, does his weight play a factor in him getting elected as president? No. 2014, do the Republicans maintain the House? Yeah, I think so. they got, they got a big lead. I, I think they'll be able to hold it. Do the Democrats maintain the Senate? Probably. Probably. I think you've got to look at this point now. When you look at the races, they'd have to run the table to. to yeah, interesting, interesting thought. Alan, and keep your eye, and we keep our eyes on Obamacare because that's going to be a story that keeps so on giving. unfolding. Keep giving, keep giving. Alan, and, uh, I promise you, clearly have an impact on 2014 and a number of races. Alan, I promise you, next week we will lead off with Obamacare, just for you, sir, just for you. Uh, we're going to we're going to do away. Normally, this is my favorite part of the show. Tell me a story. Uh, we're going to do away with that because, uh, as I said at the beginning, at the opening of the show, this is our 150th show. Uh, this is a big milestone for us. We've had bumps, we've had tech problems, and we've managed to run through it. Last week, we had our biggest listenership. Last week's show, we had over 16,000 listeners chime in to Backroom Politics, wow. our largest show. The week before, we had 9,000. We are definitely getting listened to, and we're getting attention. But we've come a long way. Bob, Al, you and I, you guys and I, we started this thing back in November of 2010. Al, did you think it would get at the point that we're at now? We've got people like Frank Ferencoff. We've had uh, Ray LaHood, John Dingle exclusives. Do you think we'd get to this point ever? Uh, no. <laughs> but I am... I am delighted. This all started at a table out in the other room where we would sit and, and talk politics. Yeah. Two Republicans and, and, and you. And me and, and, and one other guy who. Uh, and you more, you more than held your own. Well, the point was that we would, we would go away, friends, come back the next day and debate things again, go in, and finally one of us said, how in the hell is it that we can sit here and disagree and be friends, and they can't figure that out up on the hill? And we, we decided it was the lack of civility. We all know each other. We all like each other. We don't agree on a whole bunch of stuff. And we said, what we need to do is maybe form some kind of a, of a, of a, of a, of a group where we can go out and preach civility. And we started out thinking, well, we'll just hit college campuses and we'll do little panels and what have you. And we did that un until Justin came up with the idea for, for, the, for the radio program. Uh, but this started on the idea that you've got to you've got to respect your opponents politically, and that they are good people and they're fine citizens, and you don't agree with them. And so, leave it at that. And that's how this whole thing started. Bob? I think, as Al said, it's a group organization here. It's worked so well. 
It works so well because everybody at the table has a point of view. It's a legitimate point of view. It may be different than mine, but I respect it because they, in turn, respect mine. That's the brilliance of what we're doing here today, and it's wonderful. Uh, we, we've been fortunate. We, we have been, been very fortunate. We, we've been very fortunate. Uh, Bob Maserati, who's the owner of Shelley's, who's largely been our, our benefactor in this whole endeavor uh, and is the sole sponsor of, of uh, Backroom Politics. Uh, but we've been very fortunate. We've had people with a lot of political credibility join us. Carl joined us uh, back in uh, 2012. Uh, he's been around for about a year, year and a half now. We had Alan Moore come around the same time, and then Denise Krepp, who just joined us here within the past six months. I've got to tell you something. Everybody who I've talked to who's listened to this show has said that this is largely based on the political credibility that you all bring to this show. And this show is only successful because of what you guys have. And the laughter. I mean, we, we tease each other. We, 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 take, we take it seriously, but we're not stuffed shirts. Yeah. And we're, we're not on Meet the Press. And we're not I guarantee you'll never hear anybody accused... Obama and Christie French kissing on Meet the Press. <laughs> well, if they have me on, they will. <laughs> but you know what? That's why Bob Schieffer calls you. My, my favorite word, and everything that you two just said, my favorite word is comedy. C-O-M-I-T-Y. And that's what this city has lost. And hopefully comedy will come back. Yes. Well, you know, from your mouth to God's ears, but I, I got to tell you, and that's how this whole thing started, Mr. Chairman. You know, we, we've, we've grown like we've had, and we've gotten a good base of listeners that come down either here to Shelley's or listen to us weekly, every week, religiously, and we've gotten some good feedback. We still swear that CNN's listening to us, because every time we talk about a segment, 30 seconds later, their segment's up. But... Um, Alan Moore, our resident fact checker, uh, <laughs> apparently the only one with time to know the facts the way he should. The rest of us are pulling it out of our rear end. Uh, he makes up half of them anyway. <laughs> family show. Alan, I, I hope you've enjoyed your time here on Backroom. Listen, this is a policy wonk dream. <laughs> I get to expound on my ideas. Oh, oh can, boy, do you expect <laughs> and, and have the pleasure of correcting other people's mistakes. God, that's true. Uh, Carl Tubin, you, you know, uh, you, you've come a long way since you first joined us, the soft-spoken Washington insider. Even once in a while, we still got to tell you to talk into the microphone. Right. You, you still bring, you know, historical knowledge even though it goes back to, like, 1812. <laughs> uh, you, you've been fantastic with us. Uh, I mean, do you think we're making a difference? Are we trying to make a difference here? Excuse me, but, but his, his telling me stories always start with George Washington. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the problem is I was there when it all happened. <laughs> but are we making a difference, do you think? I think so. I, you know, I, I, have, a, I have one friend who... Listens faithfully. She she plays mahjong in the afternoon, and then she comes home and listens to the show for the last 45 minutes or so. But uh, uh, 
she's impressed, and, and there are other people who are, who I know who have watched, who have listened to the show, who claim that they really get something out of it. And Denise Krupp, you know, we we we've tried to expand this, and we're hoping that staffers on the Hill listen to us. Hopefully, they'll get some good ideas. And and we've gotten some some great guests on this show. Is this something that the staffers should listen to every week? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I mean. When you talk about knowing people, one of the ways I got to know my fellow staffers was to be was to travel with them. And, and some of my best friends became Republicans because we were always traveling together. And to Codels the point, were good. The yeah. oh. Codels and oh. staff bills were fantastic. I mean, my husband at a certain point was like, are you kidding me? Who's this guy you're always talking about? Do I need to be worried about this? No, he's a Republican. I'm never going to marry him. Um, but you know, it, it was just a fantastic way to do that. So I would encourage a lot of other staffers in, in Congress but also the administration. I, I, I mean, this is a very political administration, and I want to say, look, you know, you need to be able to reach out, and that's one of the benefits that I had is they coming from the Hill and then going into the administration saying, I'm going to pick up the phone and I'm going to call a Republican because I know them personally. Right. I got to dinner with them. You know them, you Yeah. Well, Hodels, Hodels, which are denounced regularly yeah. by the press. So valuable. Are are incredibly valuable because you're living for ten days or so with with people. And my golly, you find out that a whole lot of those Republicans are very decent people and you find out that some of the Democrats are, are very good. I mean they're you know. turkeys in either party. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But for, the, for those of you guys who have listened to us for the past three years with all the technical glitches and everything, we appreciate it. We hope we can keep you as regular listeners. Uh, but big things are happening. We're getting great guests, such as Frank Farenkoff today. Uh, big things. It's only going to get bigger. It's, there's a lot of momentum here, so we're going to keep that momentum going, hopefully. Uh, but with that, uh, I want to thank everybody. I, wa- I do want to make a special shout-out. Our uh, website, Nick Maverick, is a genius Check out our website, backroompolitics.org. If you need website done, good guy to go to. But he's been very helpful, very supportive, and we love him for that. Uh, with that, Bob Hines, this weekend, down in Norfolk. Yes, down in Norfolk, uh, the Gerald R. Ford, the first of a new class of aircraft carriers, is being, is being christened, is being constructed. Uh, I'm honored to be a trustee of the foundation, and I'm going to be there. Uh, just a thought about Mr. Ford. He didn't spend a lot of time in the White House, but there are several things he did that I think were will always be uh, highlights of, of any politician's career. Number one, he had the wisdom to pardon Mr. Nixon and save the country from a disastrous struggle in the courts. Number two, the Helsinki agreements, which fundamentally moved the Soviet Union into the dustpan of history. Right. He's a great man. He's a wonderful man. And we got a whole class of carriers that will from now on be known as the Ford class. Absolutely. And I will be the there when the, when the very first one is christened and Susan Ford bangs a bottle of champagne on, on the the front of the boat, I guess. That's it's called the bow. The bow. Wow. It's called the bow. You know, I'm not a sailor. Shocking. Yeah. But by God, it's a, he's a wonderful man, and I think yeah. we should all remember him for that. Uh, also, this weekend, on Monday, 
It's a long weekend. Everybody's got a long weekend. But on Monday, Monday is Veterans Day. I hear you. Monday is Veterans Day. And I, I, want you to, I want everybody who's listening to us to take an opportunity to sit down. And it's not just white linen sales at Bed Bath & Beyond. It's actually a day to remember those who ultimately give the best public service you can get, and that's serving in our all-volunteer uh, military. Take, take a time. Hug a, hug a veteran. Thank them for their service. They put a lot, and the families behind them, too, put up with a lot. Think of the families as well. So remember Veterans Day and just take a few minutes and think about that. But here's to the next 150 shows, the next three years of Backroom Politics. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. On behalf of Al Swift, Bob Hines, Denise Krep, Carl Tubin, Alan Moore, and our special guest, Mr. Chairman, thank you. You have got an open invitation. If you got a free Tuesday, come on down. You'll always have a chair. I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next week live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital. Bob? If you're not here, baby, you're not paying attention. That's, <laughs> Bob, that's not it. That's not it, dude. Three years of doing that crap, and now you need to pull this crap? Jesus. We'll see you next week. Have a great week, America.